Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, August the 4th, 2022, just two days shy of my dad's 95th birthday. Marty, may you rest in peace. Dad, I miss you more than I ever thought I would. And this show will be rebroadcast this Monday, August the 8th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 118th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Tonight's show explores... When is diplomacy not diplomacy? Tonight's show explores if and when is U.S. diplomacy instead pointed more at seeking to deceive the U.S. public into believing we are making a good faith diplomatic effort when in fact we are not, but instead are seeking to deceitfully set up a diplomatic trap in which agreement compliance is not possible. Before we can sanction, before we can interfere in the affairs of another nation by promoting civil strife or outright military support or a military attack, we must convince the average U.S. public citizen that our actions are just, that the country whose sovereignty we are compromising has violated the quote-unquote rules-based international order. We need the U.S. public to buy into that narrative. And when the news we are fed and consume is overwhelmingly owned by a handful of corporations, well, the messaging should be expected to be quite pejorative. Tonight we will visit U.S. sanctions and policies with Iran over the past 15 years or so, and we will let you judge if our foreign policy motives have been driven by democratic interests or by something else. As Dr. Mohammed Sahimi, U.S.-Iranian relations expert, rejoins bringing light into darkness. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. We are very blessed to have returning to bringing light into darkness, Dr. Mohammed Sahimi, First, I wanted to frame our discussion tonight, Dr. Sahimi, by suggesting we review an article that I just read the other week. It's about a week or two old, and it's by Brian Berletic. He's a writer for the New Eastern Outlook, and his piece was called U.S.-Iran Nuclear Deal Ploy Coming Full Circle. First of all, Dr. Sahimi, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you for making time to visit with us. I am glad to be back in your program, and thank you for having me in your program. Well, let me properly introduce Dr. Sahimi. For those that are not aware of his work, he actually is a scientist. He's a professor of chemical engineering and material science 
at the University of Southern California. In addition to his scientific research, he has been writing about Iran's political developments and Iran's nuclear program and the United States foreign policy framing of that. He has also in the past been a political columnist for PBS Frontline Tehran Bureau. He's written many articles that have been published throughout the country in the LA Times, New York Times, as well as a couple of articles we will refer to today from Responsible Statecraft. Dr. Sahimi was born and raised in Iran. He came after the revolution to the United States or slightly before the revolution, I should say, and did his undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, before moving out to the West Coast. So we have had Dr. Sahimi on many occasions, but it's been some time, and he's really brought light to understandings about nuclear energy and the nuclear cycle and what we should really be afraid of or not afraid of when it comes to countries such as Iran, as it is portrayed by the American media. So I've really learned so much from reading your articles and having you on. So again, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Dr. Sahimi. With that being said, let me just share this article then or highlight some of it for you uh, to comment on, because I think it'll be a good jumping off point. But for those people that are not fully aware, and I had to go back and do a little studying myself on the subject, but this JCPOA, this Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was signed by the United States and Iran, along with the UK, the EU, Germany, Russia, China, France, all back in 2015, the agreement offered Tehran billions of dollars in sanctions relief in exchange for agreeing to curb its nuclear program in ways that were agreed upon in the agreement. And it was aimed at ensuring that Iran's nuclear program would be exclusively peaceful, which they claimed it to be. And in return, it would lift the UN Security Council and other sanctions, including in areas covering trade, technology, finance, and energy. And so US policymakers, though, according to this article, again, let me just give you the name of the article, US-Iran nuclear deal ploy coming full circle, July 23rd, 2022 article by Brian Berletic that we uh, introduced the show with. It indicates that US policymakers as early as 2009 Dr. Sahimi had articulated a ploy by which the United States would offer Iran a quote unquote deal before what he claims deliberately sabotaging it and using its failure as a pretext for the long sought after regime change war that the U.S. has wanted against Iran. He indicates that it was the Brookings Institution that published a 2009 paper is what he's referring to, which path to Persia, options for a new American strategy toward Iran which explained or explicated this regime change strategies in Iran. In other words, this is not a conspiracy theory, but it's actually outlined in black and white in this Brookings Institute paper. And everything from setting what he called diplomatic traps to arming designated terrorist groups were not only discussed in this paper, but in the years that followed the paper's publication, they were actually implemented one after another without success. A final option, according to the Brookings paper, was a military option involving either the United States or Israel or both waging war directly and openly against Iran. And what that would need and would require would be a pretext. And so the pretext needed 
was needed because, according to the Brookings paper, they wrote, quote, any military operation against Iran will likely be very unpopular around the world and require the proper international context, both to ensure the logistical support the operation would require and to minimize the blowback from it, end quote. In many ways, Iran would be foolish not to create a sufficient military deterrence against U.S. aggression. Brian Berletic, the author of this article, says, including the development of a nuclear weapons if necessary. But instead, Iran took another path. It agreed to the nuclear deal. And until the U.S. unilaterally abandoned that deal in 2018, was abiding by it. In fact, following the U.S. withdrawal from the deal, Iran continued abiding by many of its conditions alongside its other signatories in the vain hope that under a U.S. administration, a new administration that is, it could be resalvaged. If the United States and our democratic administration and President Biden, he argues, were truly honest brokers and not deceitful and untrustworthy diplomatic partners when it came to diplomatic negotiations with Iran, When the United States President Joe Biden did take office, the obvious first step by Washington should have been to unconditionally rejoin the deal by removing sanctions, followed by Iran's renewed and full compliance to the deal's conditions. Instead, the U.S. demanded Iranian compliance first, even before agreeing to negotiate Washington's return to the deal. It was clear, according to the writer, long before President Obama's signatures was inked on the deal's documents, that the United States would sabotage it, then blame Iran, then pursue renewed and expanded aggression against Iran directly by proxy or by both. And then finally, even though it was Trump that actually backed out of the deal, I think it's important what he says here, the continuity of this policy ploy was across Republican and Democratic presidential administrations. It was a uniform policy, he argues, in a sense, as evidenced by the fact that upon coming to office, Biden did not immediately and unconditionally return the U.S. to the deal's framework. Instead, he prevented America's return to the deal by creating what is described by the author as unreasonable preconditions placed entirely upon Iran. With President Biden's statement in Israel, coupled with a recent claim by the United States National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that Iran is preparing to supply Russia with drones, the U.S. is closing the door on the deal indefinitely. So anyhow, with that all being said, two things that U.S. Syria policy, he argues, is also connected as kind of a continuity between the U.S. administrations as well. And support of the U.S. aggression in Syria is also transcending Republican and Democratic presidencies. To start off with, I would like you to comment on the claim of the argument that President Obama's initiation of this deal, as well as the presidents that followed him, were all on the same page, so to speak, that was not a genuine diplomatic outreach, but one that was, quote unquote, setting Iran up to fail in a certain sense. Can you speak to the U.S. diplomatic integrity or lack thereof? that we've seen in other negotiated settlements that we've backed out of, but particularly this one with Iran. Yes, of course. You see, for the past many decades, the United States has always looked at Iran before the revolution and after the revolution as a country that it should be its client, not its ally. Even during Shah Mahajizah Pahlavi, before the revolution, a person who came back to power 
because of the CIA coup of 1953. And even though the Shah had very close relations with successive U.S. administration, and in particular with the Nixon administration, they always look at the Shah and Iran as a client state, namely a country that should follow U.S. policy and it should give priority to U.S. interests in the Middle East rather than Iran's national interests. After the revolution, at least since 1990s, since Clinton administration, the United States, while talking about coming to terms with Iran and having a better relation, has always been after one sort or another type of uh, regime change. It was Bill Clinton that in 1995 imposed complete economic sanctions, even though six months earlier, Iran had called for bets from major European and American oil companies for development of a major oil fields. And even though the American oil company Conoco had not submitted the best bet for development of the oil field, Iran, in order to open up the relationship with the United States, granted Conoco the, the contract, even though it had been actually won by French Total, the European French oil company. But in response, Clinton not only prevented Conoco to carry out its application and develop Iranian oil field, but also imposed total economic sanctions on Iran. And even though in 1997, Muhammad Khatami, the reformist Iranian president, won in a landslide and started reforming Iranian political system, which would have been supported by the United States, helping Khatami by lifting some of the sanctions that it had imposed, Bill Clinton didn't lift even a finger. The only thing they did was lifting sanctions against exporting of Iranian caviar to the United States or Iranian carpet. And this is why Iran's economy is based on exporting its oil and petrochemical products and raw materials. They were all banned and they were all sanctioned. Dr. Sahimi, just let me interject one thing here, because I think it's important. You're bringing up Mohammed Khatami, who was president from 1997 to 2000. Five And this actually connects to one of the themes I really wanted you to address as well. According to a March 2007 article by Craig Unger in Vanity Fair, Katimi's administration did this outreach as a reformist. You know, this is a very moderate, the most moderate president they've ever had. So if our real interest was to promote moderation in Iran, this was the absolute epitome of it. And he, Katimi's administration, put forward through back channels a comprehensive Iranian diplomatic outreach where all issues were on the table, including Iran's nuclear program, the Israeli policy, support of Hamas and Hezbollah, and even the control over al-Qaeda operatives that have been captured by Iran. So if our motivation really was to promote diplomacy with Iran and treat them with the dignity and respect that any other nation should expect from honest diplomatic relations, then we would have jumped all over this opportunity. But in fact, the Bush administration actually snubbed the Swiss ambassador. 
who was the back-channel diplomatic contact that the Iranians had done the diplomatic outreach through. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that they embarrassed the president. They embarrassed Iran. They dissed this deal, and it played right into the hardliners, the conservative, neoconservative elements like Ahmadinejad. It paved the way for his rise to power, almost like it was intentional. Can you connect those dots? Of course, after the U.S. invaded Iraq in March of 2003, two months after the invasion, in fact, right around the time George W. Bush declared mission accomplished, the Khatami administration, through a Swiss embassy in Tehran, a Swiss embassy in Tehran looks after U.S. interests in, inside Iran. So the Khatami administration, through the Swiss embassy, submitted a comprehensive proposal, and in fact, Bill Kristof, the New York Times journalist still has a copy of the proposal on his website. Khatami submitted this comprehensive proposal to George W. Bush administration, proposing to address all the areas of conflict between Iran and the United States, including Iran's activities in southern Lebanon, including Iran's support for Palestinians, including Israel, and including Iran's nuclear program that have just been announced. But Dick Cheney and George W. Bush didn't even look at the proposal. In fact, they admonished the Swiss ambassador in Tehran for facilitating sending the proposal to them. So they were not interested. In fact, Dick Cheney had said that we don't uh, negotiate with terrorists. And that was around the time that the U.S. had thought that they easily defeated Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And therefore, they are going next after Iran and they will attack Iran. And that was the time that the saying was, everybody goes to Baghdad, capital of Iraq, but real men go to Tehran, promoting invasion of Iran. So, uh, but then they got into deep trouble in, in Iraq. Iraq became a quagmire for U.S. forces, and uh, that didn't work out. Now, two years after that, in 2005, the Khatami administration, in the last days of it, reached an agreement with the three European power with which it was negotiating, namely Britain, France, and Germany, regarding limit the limitations on Iran's nuclear program. The limitations of Khatami was proposing at that time. Let me ask you this just real yes. quick, because I just want you to pause for just a second. I really want our listeners to absorb what you're saying. Basically, we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. We claim we want moderation in Iran and we want to support a moderate leader, but we do everything to undermine that administration in the eyes of Iranians, in the eyes of his political rivals. And would you agree that we pave the way, therefore, after the embarrassment there to Khatimi for Ahmadinejad's rise to presidency? There is no question the George W. Bush administration played a direct role in the rise of Ahmadinejad and his election to the presidency. But it was before that, in the last few months of Khatami administration, his administration reached an agreement with the European countries about putting limits on Iran's nuclear program. And let me point this out because this is important. The limitations that Khatami administration had accepted to be put on Iran's nuclear program were far more severe than the limitations that eventually was put on Iran in 2015 as a result of agreeing to JCPOA. In other words, at that time, Khatami, being a moderate, was willing to even put 
more severe limitations on Iran nuclear program than what we eventually agreed to. But as Jack Straw, former foreign secretary of Britain, said at that time, he said that this agreement was torpedoed because George W. Bush wasn't interested in reaching any agreement with Iran. Then Ahmadinejad came to power, as you said, and I agree that U.S. opposition to Iran played a role in his rise. There were other factors, of course, but this is this was at least one factor. And then since the negotiations with European countries have failed, Ahmadinejad being a radical and neoliberal, he basically ratcheted up Iran's nuclear program and chose a path of confrontation. So that continued until President Obama came into office. We had the Green Movement in Iran in 2009 as a result of the presidential election and this perception among Iranian population with which I totally agree that the election was rigged because the hardliners in Iran wanted to prevent former Prime Minister Hossein Musavi to become president because they knew that if he become president, he had promised major reforms, even constitutional reforms, and they didn't want him to get to power. Well, two years later, we had Arab Springs, uh, and then the U.S. had this so-called humanitarian intervention in Libya, which basically destroyed the country. And then after that, Hillary Clinton, who was a senior secretary of state, said in an interview with Radio Farda, which is uh, one of the Persian uh, outlets for, for the United States broadcasting programs into Iran, that said, if the Iranian people, if the Green Movement leaders had asked the United States for help, the type of help that we gave to Libyan people, we would have obliged. In other words, she said that they were interested in bombing Iran, just like the way they did Libya, and intervening in Libya, just in Iran, the way they did in Libya, if the Green Movement had asked for it, which of course they didn't, because this was a homegrown movement rather than puppets of the United States within Iran. This is yet another very moderate yes. road that could have occurred, but, but yes. clearly, clearly our policy is not to allow the sovereign development of nations, but exactly. Only, exactly only if they're client states, as you alluded to earlier. Exactly. So President Obama and Hillary Clinton imposed the harshest economic sanctions in Iran. And for you, your listener, I must point out that the sanctions that the United States since the Obama era have imposed on Iran are far worse than any sanctions that the United States imposed on the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. We never had this type of sanctions imposed on the Soviet Union, even though at that time, the United States only peer at the international level was the Soviet Union. And even though in this country, we always consider the Soviet Union an enemy number one, an enemy number one that could destroy the United States with its nuclear arsenal. But even then, the sanctions, the limited sanctions that the United States imposed on the Soviet Union was nothing compared to the sanctions that they imposed on Iran. But Obama, the supposedly anti-war candidate and the supposedly a person who was after reducing tensions with Iran and in the Middle East, and the guy who won Nobel Prize for peace for just promising that he would do these things. Anyway, eventually we got to the nuclear agreement of July 2015, 
and the agreement went into effect in February of 2016. And Iran, by all accounts, according to reports by International Atomic Energy Agency, according to reports by European Union, and so on, delivered its part of the bargain. In other words, Iran put the severe limit that it had agreed on its nuclear program. Uh, it limited the number of centrifuges that it could use to enrich uranium. It limited those type of centrifuges to the most elementary one. It basically caused an underground, under a mountain uh, center for enriching uranium. It removed the core of uh, nuclear reactors that it had built over the years in Iraq and many other things. And it agreed on a volunteer basis to the additional protocol of the International Atomic Energy Agency for inspecting Iran's nuclear program. I say voluntary because signing the additional protocol by Iran has still not been approved by the Iranian parliament. And as long as any foreign treaty is not approved by the uh, Iranian parliament or any other country's parliament, just like U.S. Senate here, Abiding what is provision is basically voluntary. It's not obligatory or mandatory. So Iran did all of that. Then Trump came into office and under the leadership of Mike Pompeo, the total sanctions on Iran and exited the nuclear agreement. Even though U.S. exit from the agreement was totally illegal from an international point of view. Why? Because Resolution 2231 of the United Nations Security Council, that was issued in support of the nuclear agreement was actually filed up under chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter. When something is filed under chapter 7, and chapter 7 is dedicated to international peace and security, executing its provisions is mandatory for a country. And the United States itself voted for that resolution. So, exceeding the nuclear agreement was in violation of 20. 231, which means violation of an international agreement supported by United Nations Security Council. Uh, Dr. Sahimi, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We will be back with our guest in just a flash, so please stay tuned. Don't touch that dial.